We're in Galatians chapter 3. If you want to be turning there, page 1398 in your pew Bibles. And I invite you to stand immediately, actually, today. And we're just going to read verses 19 through 29. That's our text. Paul writes, why then was the law given? It was added because of transgressions until the arrival of the seed to whom the promise referred. It was administered through angels by a mediator. A mediator is unnecessary, however, for only one party. But God is one. Is the law then opposed to the promises of God? Certainly not, for if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come from the law. But the scripture pronounces all things confined by sin so that by faith in Jesus Christ, the promise might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law became our guardian to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Let's pray. Father, uh, some of us joke around with a term like Biblish and Christianese. There's a lot of these terms in here today. Uh, We pray that and we confess that you are the one who wrote these words. You are the one who can... Bring these words to light and to life to us. You can turn them into the bread of life and feed it to us. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that's what you would do. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be glorified. That we would be matured in the faith. We ask to have open ears and an open heart to hear your word. I invite you to say the Lord's Prayer with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. May be seated. As surprising as it may be, I was in my office Thursday morning thinking about maybe I should preach from somewhere else in the Bible. Because, quite honestly, lots of Galatians is sounding the same. But then I thought of 
the fact that I think I'm losing sight of the stakes. I, I, I was losing sight of the passion and, and the sermon. Maybe for you every Sunday it just sounds like this. But even I said to myself, with what I have written down, it just sounds too boring lectury. <laughs> and the sermon just wasn't framed the right way. And I think the right way is to know that you need Christ. We need Christ. You know, I read a really disheartening article last week. I won't go into the details as to to where's and to the particulars, only that it was in the wake of this Roe vs. Wade overthrow. And there seemed to be this leftist militant group. No, it wasn't Antifa or it wasn't BLM. But anyway, some people were saying the time for peaceful protest is over. This is our time. And they were using their influence to incite people to literally storm crisis pregnancy centers. I had a lot of emotional responses to that, but primarily I said, how sad. How sad that some people see this as their just cause of the century. For perhaps I felt how Northerners felt in the Civil War era, trying to wrap around my head how some people can be so militantly aroused at the cause of what they perceive to be justice. When that very justice is the destruction and the dehumanization of innocent and voiceless life. I think we need better causes. We need better passions. And we have such a passion in Christ. The biggest problem in the world has been, ever will be, and is the separation of creation from its maker. You and I are born, made, molded, and formed for the very glory of God. And you say, glory of God sounds a lot like a hard drive that has 250 terabytes or whatever, Kevin. It sounds like Christianese, this phrase, glory of God. Learn the phrase. (laughs) Because the Bible says it's what you're made for. You're made to reflect God, to give weight and praise to God. You're made to bear His image. You are made for that. Well, this isn't debatable. This isn't, well, that's your thought. If you believe in his word and that it's God breathed and God sourced and inspired, the maker says, I made you to give me glory, which is a lot like asking a producer of coffee makers. Why did you make the coffee maker? Well, to make coffee. So then the coffee maker best thrives doing what it was made for, namely making coffee. I don't like coffee at all, Um, but I don't try to tell my coffee maker to toast my bread. Or to stir up orange juice or to play music. Now, these days you could probably get it to do those things, but I tell my coffee maker to make coffee. Similarly, when God's prized creation, humanity, is severed from its purpose, that is glorifying him, it malfunctions. It starts thinking that arousing a bunch of malfunctioning sinners to blow up places that take care of pregnant women is a passion and a cause worth fighting for you made known to me the path of life in your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures 
forevermore. David got it. David understood it. How many of us are here? How many of us know that there is joy in the Lord? I missed a song. (laughs) How many of us, upon restoring that communion with Christ, can honestly say we have found fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore? I'll be the first to admit, not me all the time. And that's what's at stake. And the law, the law of Moses and teachers who compel their students, their followers, their congregations to stick to the law, overlook Christ. And in Christ is where joy is at hand. In Christ is where communion to God lives. See, the law focuses on me and my adherence and my obedience and what's wrong with me. The law is an imposition and Christ is an invitation. Galatians 3:19 Why then was the law given? Paul's been hammering, you know it, I know it, he's been hammering. It's not about the law. It's about the promise. The promise came first, and the promise outlasts the law. The law came to a ragtag large, large population of Israelites with four to five hundred years of history behind them. But the promise shows up to a Gentile representative of all mankind. Abraham wasn't Jewish yet. It's about the promise. And if this isn't the case, why then was the law given? It's, it's a good question. It makes sense. The law seems to be a huge part of God's people, Paul. But if it's about the promise, why then was the law given? Paul answers, it was added because of transgressions until the arrival of the seed. Spoiler, that's Jesus to whom the promise referred. Here's the quickest and the easiest way that I took this. People sin. And God knew it was going to be 2,000 years or so before Christ would come and die for the sins of the world, rise again and leave us his Holy Spirit and make us new from the inside out. So we needed some pointers. We needed some restraining power. One of my study Bibles laid it out best, though, I think. And I wasn't just going to rip it and tell you that I came up with it. So this answer of because of transgressions might mean To provide a sacrificial system, didn't mean for it to do that. I hope it doesn't do it again. (laughs) Might mean to provide a sacrificial system to deal temporarily with transgressions or to teach people more clearly what God requires and thereby to restrain transgressions or to show that transgressions violated an explicit written law. Or to reveal people's sinfulness and need for a savior. Romans 3.20, for the law merely brings awareness of sin. All four senses are theologically true, but the last is probably uppermost in Paul's mind. So says the ESV study Bible. Paul's going to go into why the law was what it was by giving an illustration. But before that, he adds an interesting anecdote I believe to more fully elevate the promise over the giving of the law. He says the law. Now I can't do anything. Here we go. Okay. The law 
it was administered through angels by a mediator. The law was the mediator was Moses. It was administered through angels. And some of you are like, yeah, I remember that passage. No, I don't. And so Exodus might seem to miss out on this little nugget when giving us uh, the narrative of Moses receiving the law. However, we do read in Deuteronomy out of the mouth of Moses. He says the Lord came from Sinai and dawned upon us from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran and came with myriads of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Surely you love the people, all the holy ones are in your hand and they sit down at your feet. Each receives your words, the law that Moses gave us. God came with myriads of hosts of holy ones, angels. And then there is this mediator, Moses. That's how the law came. Follow me back in verse 20. This is the hardest verse in the book. But I figured I'm a pastor of a world church. I got to figure it out. A mediator is unnecessary. However, for only one party, but God is one. That's easy to follow, right? No. One of my commentaries says, reportedly 300 interpretations have been proposed in explanation of this different verse. And I'm going to go through all of them right now. No, just kidding. The Then the interpretation that my commentary goes on to state seems most easy and agreeable. Paul, again, is setting up the differences between the law and the promise. And he seems to be saying, whereas the law came administered by angels and through a mediator, Moses. Now, when we see that process, process in Exodus, the promise separately, the promise came directly from God to Abraham. No mediator. Well, we might say, but Kevin, angels were in, or Paul, angels were involved with the law. That seems pretty forceful, supernatural, significant. And God directly spoke to Moses, so it doesn't seem that different, Paul. You know, I've written letters to various presidents over the years. I've never received one handwritten signed letter from any president. They all came likely from form letters or secretaries. And if they were ever read over by the president in power, I wouldn't even know or know the difference. And I would likely feel very different if a president hand wrote a letter or called me up. And I feel like that's the difference that Paul is making. One was given to Moses on a bunch of tablets given to a bunch of people. The other was spoken directly to Abraham. Paul is further distancing the law from the promise. The law was received to the people by a mediator, Moses. The promise was received directly to the people. Because what Abraham receives, people can receive. Righteousness by faith in God. So, regroup. If the promise is more significant in your mind, why was the law given? Paul answers, because of transgressions. And I think Paul's going to unpack that as we move along. And then Paul took this opportunity to further elevate the promise by saying the promise came directly to Abraham from God, whereas the law came to the people through a mediator named Moses and angels, one directly from God, the second from angels and a mediator. The implication is direct words from God to Abraham seems to place a higher significance on the promise. Verse 21 is 
the law then opposed to the promises of God? This is a sensible hypothetical question that Paul either expects or maybe he has had put to him. Paul, you're going through great pains to diminish the law's authority, usage, history, and power in the life of God's people. Is it flat out opposed to this category you've called promises? Is what God delivered on Mount Sinai through Moses opposed or contrary to what God said to Abraham? Because Paul's made this distinction, he's, he's put them in two separate categories. Now, I said last week, they're almost like two separate roads to God. The former, the law, is just happens to be unattainable and not doable. The latter, the promise of salvation by faith in God is what Christ declared as the only way, truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through him and through that promise. So the question is, is are these two roads opposed to one another? <clears throat> Do these two things coexisting somehow cause a wrench in theology or faith? Certainly not, says Paul. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come from the law. Now, Paul, I believe, is now talking about function of the law. While in theory and on paper and ink, as Paul stated earlier in the chapter, quoting Leviticus 18.5, about the law, the man who does these things, the law, will live by them. The law does claim to be a way of life, but also the law states in Deuteronomy twenty-seven twenty-six, also quoted earlier by Paul in this same chapter, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. So while claiming to be a path of life, it also demands complete, total and perfect submission and obedience to it. And if you've done that, talk to me afterwards, because I want to know how to do that. <laughs> I believe it is impossible. Good luck trying. But for the rest of us who are realists, as Paul states, for if the law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come from the law. But since life cannot be imparted by the law, simply because there's no one, save Jesus, that's the point, obedient enough to receive such life, the law now serves a purpose. But it does not serve the same purpose as the promise. Does that make sense? I'm amazed because I got confused preaching it. Okay. <laughs> Paul says the purpose is this. And it, it's likely picking up on what Paul said about verse 19. About the law being added because of transgressions. Paul says in verse 22, but the scripture, likely using this as a synonym for the law, pronounces all things confined by sin so that by faith in Jesus Christ, the promise might be given to those who believe. Now, this is a verse also translated very differently, translation to translation. And I believe the word that is in question often is this word confined. It's actually the same Greek word in places like Luke 5, 6, where Jesus does the miracle of the fishes for Peter. And the ESV there states, and when they had done this, they had enclosed. That's the same Greek word as confined back here in Galatians 3:22, A large number of fish and their nets were breaking. Now, as for the idea of Galatians 3:22, it says the scripture pronounces all things confined by sin. I actually think. 
For me, it's most easiest to understand, believe it or not, in the King James, which says, but the scripture hath concluded all under sin. See, the law shows how everything and everyone is infected, affected and enslaved by sin so that by faith in Jesus Christ, the promise might be given to those who believe. Now, follow me again. This this second road to Christ, this promise, as opposed to the first road to the law. The second road wins out because Jesus declares it's the only way in the truth and the life because the law reveals that no one can keep the law. No one's perfect except Jesus. He's kept the law. He's perfect. And in him, we are all saved. We are all accounted righteous by faith in him and what he's done. Verse 23. Before this faith came, Paul obviously means this new covenant faith in Christ. We were held in custody under the law, locked up, related to that same word, confined, until faith should be revealed. So the law became our guardian to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. I'm just taking it straight again from one of my study Bibles because I don't think I could say it any better. The Greek word here for guardian is a term designating basically the sort of slave that's responsible for a child's training, especially for pointing out and punishing misbehavior. Another important function of guardians was to separate and protect the child from the influence of outsiders. So I feel like Paul has selected a illustrative word here that's quite appropriate. And eventually the child that a guardian cares for would hopefully depart under the influence of the guardian as a mature man. So for the law, for God's people, he preserved them by disciplining and punishing evil. And if followed, if the law was followed, it would maintain their identity as separate from outsiders. So that when Christ came, the righteous remnant of Israel The people who have been faithful to God and have not departed from the law as much as they were able, they would know that Christ is the fulfillment. Christ is what the law was leading us to. And now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We are in deep. So I think I need another regroup here just to know how we're tracking. Paul began by answering a hypothetical question. Why the law? Right. Paul. You've made this point. There is the promise to Abraham and you're saying it's better, more binding than the law of Moses. Why was the law given? Paul has said because of transgressions. And I believe he's just unpacked that here, which I'll review quickly again. But before he unpacked that, he took a moment to say the promise came directly from God himself. While the law came through angels and the mediator, suggesting that the promise is more significant. Thirdly, another hypothetical question pops up. Is the law opposed to the promise? Is it at war? Is there a wrench in the theological works when it's considered along with the promise? Do these two ideas hate each other? And the answer that Paul gave is no. The law, by its sheer inability to keep it. (laughs) Case in point. (laughs) Good job, Miles. I'll pay you later. Um, 
Paul says, by the sheer inability to keep the law was never meant to serve the purpose that the promise does. The law's purpose is to essentially lead us to receive the promise by how the law exposes sin. Does that make sense? So we need to move our heads out of the water. And I want to go back to the beginning, how I opened it, because in a first draft, the whole sermon sounded like my review. It was just catechism. Question this. Answer that. And just as as catechisms are operating, I believe. On an unspoken presupposition, authors of catechisms make some presuppositions or some assumptions about the readers and reciters of such catechism. So this whole sermon and Paul's whole book presupposes something. Paul's writing a church that was Christian or supposed to be. And perhaps to give them the benefit of the doubt, Paul may have presumed that the Galatians passionately wanted to be the best Christians they can be. Because if that's not the passion of any Christian, it should be. Many have framed the conversion experience in ways that are less than exciting for me. Many have articulated the need to be saved in ways that are just not passion stirring for me. Because if the goal is this, let's get you saved to keep you out of hell. We're talking about an abstract future, maybe hard to picture idea. Let's just be honest. Uh, Some might be miffed by this because this has been the chosen frame of reference for the church for maybe a century or more has been this. Let's get you saved out of hell. And so to question that seems to be questioning decided scriptural authority. Sure, salvation means you'll be saved out of hell. But salvation can and does mean you'll be saved from yourself. You'll be saved from sin. It means you'll be reunited, returned, restored and redeemed to your purpose of communion with God. You'll be plugged back into your power source. You'll be moved from death to life. Like I said, I don't force my coffee maker to toast my bread. And people have been coffee makers trying to toast bread, fry bacon, wash cars and do everything except brew coffee unless They are reunited with their maker to do their maker's desired purpose. Glorify him. And to glorify him is our purpose, which means only in him shall we be satisfied. Only in him shall we be alive. Only in him will we be energized, content in doing what we were made to do. Jesus uses the illustration of water and thirst because coffee wasn't invented yet. So he says to a gal at a well, just trying to get you to laugh, that he's trying to convert or to restore her to her purpose. He says people keep coming back to the same old water and they're never satisfied. They always return. Jesus says, I offer living water that will entirely satisfy and will never go out. So this this is what makes what Paul is talking about all the more important, all the more urgent Because I want to know how to return to my purpose. I want to know how to best thrive in my life doing what I was made to do. I want to know to how to never thirst, but to be satisfied. And some Galatian teachers seem to think that keeping a bunch of laws makes a bunch of dead sinners come back to life. And Paul says, no, it's Christ. And in Christ alone is where one's lives are turned back on. And so in a similar fashion, likewise, as if I was studying for this, Paul moves from weighty theology 
somewhat into more familial, more personable terms. And he says this, picking it up in verse 26. He says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Do you hear the personableness in this? The abstract theological weighty things. And Paul's just said, here's real practical. Here's real life. You, he says to the Galatians, many of them, if not most of them Gentiles, you are all sons of God. People understand that. I know what it's like to be a son. You know what it's like to be a son or a daughter. And Paul is saying, you are all sons of God. Well, why just sons, Paul, not not sons and daughters? Sure, it's a cultural language thing. Just like if I said hermanos in Spanish, that's a male only term. But that's how you say brothers and sisters. But also, I believe the original Greek term that Paul used goes a little bit further Yes, it was all inclusive, but he has a further purpose in my mind, which he's going to touch on in a few verses. But we're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And there's an unspoken contrast to this, but I believe it's still true. If you consider the entire book of Galatians, we're all sons through faith in Christ Jesus, not through practicing the law. We're restored to our maker. We return to our family tree. Sons of God, the one who made us. This happens by faith in Christ Jesus. Paul may be touching briefly on defining that term faith. In verse 27, he says, For you, for all of you who were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. Now, some people, me too, we like to read the Bible just as a series of proof texts. Like, I have a bunch of... Theological beliefs, and I'm going to pull out some proof text to prove to you my point. And so some people like to look at this baptized into Christ, and we're in a Quaker church. And so Quaker's Paul's talking about a, a baptized baptism into Christ here. Does Paul believe it's necessary to get converts wet in a river somewhere sometimes? Maybe. Whether people should get dunked or not is likely not what he has in mind here. Rather, he could be using a word picture All of you who were baptized, immersed, converted, or came to to faith, just as that phrase in verse 26, into Christ. So here's the point. Here's the kicker. What you should be doing. If you've been immersed into Christ, if you've converted into Christ, you should have clothed yourselves with Christ. You know what that does? That should answer the whole Galatian law lover problem right there. Because I think many people who want to pull out the law and say, let's keep this, we're not keeping this, might have a problem with hypocritical Christians, right? People who've said, I've said the sinner's prayer, I go to church, I own a Bible, and then I drink and watch garbage, and I basically have the values and passions of everyday people who don't know God. That's not right. That person is either flat out unsaved, headed that direction, or if they are saved, which that's up for God to judge, I should say, if they think they're saved, they apparently didn't grasp what salvation in Christ means. It's not fire insurance. It's not a saved from hell ticket. Paul says, if you've been baptized in Christ, then you have clothed yourselves with Christ. That is, you've put on all that it means to be Christ to the world. You're adopting his values, his morality, his perspective, his thinking, his mission. And you're saying, I want to be like Christ. Christ was not two sided. 
double-sided. Christ did not come to earth and simply say once, I believe in God. Then he went to the synagogue on Saturdays. He knew a few lines from the Torah. And then he went fishing with Peter and he took up the life of a fisherman or a zealot. Or he continued as a carpenter and he just sunk into the city life of Capernaum going about this every day, unaffected by things that happened between him and God. Because I think the law lover says, well, we need to be different. And the law lays out how to be different. Yeah, and if you actually follow Christ, if you actually sincerely, wholeheartedly believe he's true, that he communicates, that he means what he says when he said, I leave you the Holy Spirit, then follow him, be clothed in him. You will be his and not the world's. You'll be a son of God and not the son of the devil or of the world. It's through the promise we inherit, inherit the Holy Spirit, not the law. The last two verses, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, I want to say a lot of things in what Paul has been saying in the book of Galatians, period, builds up to this point. In fact, so many things I could, and in fact, I will do a separate sermon on it. For right now, though, there is a point that Paul is making generally here. And so some of you, if you're going to say Kevin's going over too lightly, these verses, just know that I will revisit it. And if others of you are saying Kevin can skim over it because it seems pretty cut and dry. Well, there are some things in these verses that have often missed ramifications, considering the rest of the Bible and popular interpretations of the Bible. But the point that Paul is making quickly is that in Christ Everyone receives the promise given to Abraham. Being Jewish or having the law hasn't been an always immediate concern when it comes to this promise because it was made before the law or even before the Jewish race was established. Does that make sense? In fact, being in Christ is the most inclusive, our culture loves that word right now, inclusive offer ever. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, God, when giving his promise through Christ, wasn't looking for Jewish people. He wasn't looking for non-Jewish people. God's not racist. He's no respecter of persons. And though Jesus shows up often for the poor, he quotes Isaiah and Luke 4 that he's come to set the oppressed free and preach to the poor. Christ isn't making an exclusive barrier to his invitation there. He's for the slave and for the free. Though Jesus has called 12 disciples to do his ministry, we see women accompanying, ministering, and even fund their efforts. Christ is calling male and female. The righteous Obtained by faith in God is not exclusive, prohibited, or inhibited. It's universal. It's inclusive. And the invitation leads to adoption. In Christ, the offer for restoration to our original intent is available for all people. The inheritance that Abraham received when he simply trusted in God was righteousness. And that righteousness meant right standing with God. And right standing with God means open communion with God. And open communion with God is what Adam and Eve experienced in the garden. 
It's what you and I are made for. And it's what we men, women, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, everyone. It's how we can be seeds or sons of Abraham and heirs of Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we go through a book slowly, sometimes we could lose a forest for the trees, as it were. Help us to see why this is important. What's at stake? What we're getting ourselves into and what we really should desire. Maybe we haven't desired when we first came to you, but what we should desire when we put our faith in you and receive righteousness. Father, it's what we're made for. Many of us have malfunctioning lives. We, as Paul says in Romans 7, we do the things we don't want to do and we don't do the things we know we should do. It seems part of us desires the things that are good and holy, things that you have declared good. And another part of us desires, oddly enough, things that we know that will torment us and ultimately lead to failure and sin and death and folly. Father, help us to receive day by day the faith, the promise of faith, faith in you. Help us to stay humble before you, to remain teachable and yielded to your spirit. To desire forgiveness whenever we need to seek it, to be willing to repent when we need to repent. And help us to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.